Hello, folks. Good morning. Welcome to the fellowship. Um, this morning, as we continue through the Minor Prophets, we're going to be in Zephaniah. Thankfully, Aaron read a good portion of it, so I don't have to. <laughs> did that intentionally so that maybe we could get through some of it. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of cover it, but I'm, I'm not going to read all those and expound on all of it. So um, remember, Minor Prophets, because not of their um, importance or anything, that they're not less important just because they're length. Um, Zephaniah is right after Habakkuk, so... At this point, we're, we're getting enough through it, we're getting close enough to the end of the Old Testament that if you go to Matthew and hang a left, you can just go back uh, four books and you'll hit Zephaniah, um, but obviously it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, something that, I mean, I'm, I may have heard this before, but I was reminded of it in my studying this week. Um, the Old Testament is, bro- I, I thought this was cool, it's not anything to do with this sermon particularly, but... I wanted to share it. So the Old Testament is broken down, um, you know, through different things. Obviously, we know the law, the, the Pentateuch, um, Moses' law, those first five books of the Bible. Um, but it's broken down. If you remember these numbers, you can kind of remember how it's broken down. So 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Right? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. So you have the law, the first five books. And the next twelve or the next twelve books is the history, and then you have five books of poetry, five books of the major prophets, and then the five the twelve minor prophets. Five, twelve, five, five, twelve. Um, so anyway, but those something I should say. Um, the minor prophets we say are minor because of their length; they're a little bit shorter than the major prophets. But Lamentations is included in those major prophets even though it's shorter, but it's tied in with Jeremiah, and he's got his whole big Jeremiah book, so they throw it in there with it. Um, and they go they go hand in hand with it, with each other as well. So anyways, 512, for what it's worth. Uh, the name Zephaniah means the Lord hides. We'll get into that more later in the text. Uh, Zephaniah's message is similar to Joel, but it's the coming day of the Lord. Uh, remember in, uh, in Joel, it was the first... One we talked about in this series, um, the Minor Prophets. And he talked about the day of the Lord, which was coming uh, first through the locusts, then through an army, and finally through God coming as the divine warrior. And uh, Zephaniah, I believe, talks more about day of the Lord than any other of the prophets. Um, so it's a lot of judgment happening. Um, it's a day when judgment is poured out on sin, on sinners. Um, generally, when we study the day of the Lord. It's an eschatological reference. Um, it's, it's to the end times events, this final day of the Lord, this final day of judgment, um, Terminator 2 style, I guess. I don't know. But then um, Terminator 2 judgment day is the... So, uh, but then there's also a temporal aspect to it, so more of an immediate aspect to the day of the Lord. And that's uh, both are here present in Zephaniah. So the general framework for Jeff, Zephaniah, I almost called him Zephaniah, or Jephaniah, but the general, general framework for it, Zephaniah, is judgment on Judah. So it goes from judgment on Judah to the judgment on the nations, and then a restoration for Judah. So it goes kind of from narrow to wide, and then back to narrow again, and it kind of has a little, little blurb back and wide again, and then it 
narrows back down to just talking about Judah. And just like when we were talking about um, in Nahum and even in Jonah, whenever um, they used the word Nineveh, it was sort of interpreted to be all of Assyria, right? And so um, whenever Zephaniah talks about Jerusalem, he's talking about all of Judah, that southern kingdom. So um, let's pray and we'll get into it a little bit further. So let's pray. Lord, I pray you will open up this text to us this morning. Help us to see your word and um, what it's telling us for today, what that means for us today. Uh, but also let us you know, get into learning about uh, what is Zephaniah's message for his hearers in his day as well. And um, Lord, I pray we'll be changed people um, after this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Zephaniah 1.1 1, 1, says, the, This is the Lord's message that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, during the time of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah, we, we know something about him, right? So, several of these prophets we don't know anything about. We know kind of what their name means. But that's sort of been the, the importance of it is, you know, the... The message isn't about what the who this prophet is or whatever, but it's what is their message? What is the message God gave the prophet? We know something about Zephaniah and it's that he can track his lineage all the way back to Hezekiah. Um, and so, and it says he's prophesying during the reign of Josiah. So um, he's a different lineage. His great 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 grandfather, whether whatever it is, is Hezekiah. He can trace his lineage back to him. Um, it's significant. He mentions Hezekiah, and that's significant because there's really two significant kings during this time. Two significant kings that were godly kings. That's Hezekiah and Josiah. So he's he's saying this because um, it's sort of giving him um, giving him a foot to stand on. It's giving him um, I don't want to say clout, but it's giving him um, he's not just some Yehu that's writing. He, he's somebody that's of this lineage. So when he talks about these priests and these kings and everything, he's like, trust me, I know my great-great-grandfather or whatever it is is Hezekiah, and I'm in that lineage. And so he is th he's this son. So between Hezekiah and Josiah, there's Manasseh and Ammon, uh, or Ammon, and they were both very wicked kings. It was like they're <laughs> Manasseh started the evil wickedness, bringing in worship of Baal and setting up Asherah poles and all these things. And then Ammon just continued it. And then when he died, Josiah was only eight. They made him king as an eight-year-old. Um, and, you know, he, it says when he was eight, he became king and he started, um, he started seeking the Lord, the, the God of David is what it says. And then, in the 12th year of his reign, he starts ridding the land of these Asherah poles and stuff. And then it wasn't until the 18th year of his reign that they found this scroll randomly, the Law of Moses. And um, basically they found the Bible at their point for what they had. And when it was read before King Josiah, this is Second Chronicles 34 if you want to check it out. Um, I, this verse is not going to be up there, but let me show you. It says, for the Lord's great fury has been ignited against us because our ancestors did not obey the word of the Lord by living according to what is written in the scroll. In the scroll. So um, he, he was just confronted with Scripture, and he said, Wow, the Lord's fury is great among us. It is, it is, his fury has been ignited against us. 
um, because we are not living according to what's written in, in the in the word. And so, um, so this is the message of Zephaniah. He hears this um, message from the Lord, and he's um, he's giving this during that time of Josiah. So Josiah is trying to restore the people of Judah. He's trying to bring them back to living a godly life, but there's a lot that he's having to fight against, and he doesn't ultimately do that. And we've talked about Josiah and, and other, you know, last week and everything, so no, but... Uh, Let's look at these next couple of verses. Notice the language here and think about what other biblical event this might remind you of. Verse 2 and following says, I will, I, will, I will destroy everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will destroy people and animals. I will destroy the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea. The idolatrous, ima the idolatrous images of these creatures will be destroyed along with evil people. I will remove humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. So it's sort of like a reverse creation story, right? Um, I think it's more reminiscent of an event that happens later in Genesis. But you know, with creation, we have the the creation of these these creatures, these um, birds of the air, the people, the animals, the fish of the sea, all this. Um, but then later on in Genesis, we have you know the flood story with with Noah. And God is destroying everything from the face of the earth in that flood account. So this is sort of similar to that. And then verse 4 says, I will, I will attack Judah and all who live in Jerusalem. Now there's a lot in this one little statement, the first part of verse 4 here. Um, this is when Zephaniah narrows God's judgment down to Judah. First of all, he's just talking about generally God's going to destroy all these things. And now we're talking about this is Judah. I'm going to attack Judah and all who live in Jerusalem. Um, Secondly, this I will attack Judah, it's often translated, and it might be if you're in a different translation than me, um, it's often translated, I will stretch out my hand. So he's saying, I'm going to stretch out my hand on Judah. Um, this would be very, this would hit very hard for those hearing this at this time. Very hard. This I will stretch out my hand is idiomatic of hostile action. Um, God said it to Moses in Exodus 3. Um, from the burning bush and he's talking about Egypt and so now he's saying it to the people of Judah that God is going to stretch out his hand against Judah and they're hearing this and they would be really it would strike fear it would strike disbelief in the situation they would be questioning like why God hasn't accepted their worship um, which we'll, we'll get to that he gets that very quickly actually we'll see in the rest of verse 4 um, he says I will remove the I will remove from this place every trace of bell worship as well as the memory of the pagan priest so um, this is why the lord is going to stretch out his hand against them because they have not um, they have not been faithful to god they've been unfaithful to god um, and so you know they're going to hear i will stretch out my hand against you and they're like why would you do this and then he's like i'm going to remove this place for with the bell worship uh, the very memory of the pagan priest they're like oh yeah, okay, so we've been unfaithful to the Lord. We've added bell worship to our worship of the Lord. That's why he's going to stretch out his hand. That's why this judgment is coming. Um, he's very quick to answer that. In verse 5, he says, I will remove those who worship the stars in the sky from their rooftops, those who swear allegiance to the Lord while taking oaths in the name of their king, and those who turn their backs on the Lord and do not want the Lord's help or guidance. So notice the pro progression here, really from the end of verse 4 through verse 6. 
says there are those who are practicing polytheism. They've added to their worship of the Lord, the worship of Baal and these other pagan gods um, to their worship of the Lord. Um, it's like they wanted to cover all their bases, basically. They're, they're living there. They know they should be worshiping the Lord, the Lord alone. Um, they've read um, Deuteronomy. They know that God is a jealous God, that we should have no other gods before him. Yet, they're also intrigued by this Canaanite fertility god, Bel. They're, they're seeing these other foreigners that are worshiping Bel. They're like, you know what, maybe we should go ahead and cover our bases and worship Bel as well. And so, they're worshiping more than one God. And, you know, they, the other significant thing is Bel worship was really the primary reason why the northern kingdom, Israel, fell. Why they are now in exile in, well, Syria. And so this is a, this is like a, why did you not remember what happened with Israel, the northern kingdom? Uh, you, you're doing the same thing that they did. And so that, and that's 2 Kings 17. Uh, so the second group mentioned here, verse 5, they're practicing astrology or astronomy, whichever one it is. They're worshiping, uh, you know, they're splitting allegiance with the Lord, with the sun god, various planet gods or gods of stars, all these things. Um, and then the, the verse 6 mentions this third group that they've completely turned their backs on any type of worship. They've adopted practical theism. They say, those who turn their backs on the Lord and do not want the Lord's help or guidance. They completely turn their back on him. And the rest of chapter 1 um, describes the rest of the who and the how God's judgment will come. Uh, verse 7 is the first time the day of the Lord is actually mentioned here. It says, Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the Lord's day of judgment is almost here. The Lord has prepared a sacrificial meal. He has ritually purified his guests. So to have a sacrificial meal, you have to have a sacrifice. So the slaughter of these animals, Ephaniah is saying, is metaphorical for how bloody the Lord's judgment is going to be. And he says, verse 8, On that day of the Lord... That on that on the day of the Lord's sacrificial meal, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all who all who wear foreign styles of clothing. So even their clothing clothing shows how far they've strayed from devotion to God. In verses nine through eleven, on that day I will punish all who leap over the threshold, who fill the house of their master with the wealth taken by violence and deceit. On that day, says the Lord. A loud cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the city from the city's newer district, and a loud crash from the hills. Well, you who live in the market district, for all the merchants will disappear, and those who count money will be removed. So God will punish those who practice these different types of injustices. Those who leap over the threshold, in verse 9, refers to somebody breaking into someone's home. Um, there's also um, some evidence saying that this could this could be some kind of pagan worship to some Dagon God. And so uh, they would hop over some ritualistic threshold thing in their worship to him. So um, they've strayed. They're breaking into people's homes that's some, somehow filling their master's home with wealth. Uh, verse 10 11 speaks to those practicing deceit and fraud in their businesses. It says, A loud cry from the fish gate. Today, today we know that as the Damascus gate on the northern side of the city. Um, so it's called the fish gate because that's the entry point where the fishermen would bring their goods to market. 
And so these people are practicing this injustices in there, uh, both, you know, in breaking into people's homes and things like that, but also just in the marketplace, people are being dishonest and, and their dealings there. And so all these injustices, God's going to put his judgment against. Verse 12 says, at the same time, I will search through Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the people who are entrenched in their sin. Those who think to themselves, the Lord neither rewards nor punishes. So where it says, um, I will punish those entrenched in their sins, um, the sin it's referring to is a sin of complacency. Some versions translate it more literally um, complacency, um, or it'll say the literal, literal translation of that is who are like wine left on its dregs. Um, so it's a winemaking reference. So when you're aging wine in its barrels, you have to turn the barrel periodically. Some people turn their barrels, some, I guess, places turn their barrels three times a day. Um, and if you don't do that, the sediment will build up on the bottom of the barrel. And if you left it unattended, the sediment turns into this thick syrup that's no good for the wine. It's very, um, can be very bitter tasting and everything. It really affects the, the wine terribly. And so, so basically, fair warning, fair you know, friendly reminder. When you get home, go into your wine cellar and, and turn your bottle so you don't have this happening. Uh, but that's the complacency that they're talking about: is this sediment that's building up because you're these they're too lazy to even turn their wine around or whatever. They're just letting the wine sit on its dregs. Um, the translation adopted here views the sin involved as one of indifference that goes between like it goes like beyond the smug self-satisfaction suggested by the word complacency to an attitude that it's hardened into deliberate disregard for the Lord and his standards. The, uh, the, NA, the NASB translates it those who are stagnant in spirit. And I think that's a great picture because it ties together the literal um, reference to wine and the spirit there and the intended meaning of like our complacency in spirit. So he's saying this is the, he will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish those who are entrenched in their sin or those who are complacent in their spirit. And, uh, you know, I think we should see, sorry, verse 13, uh, really through chapter 2, verse 3, gives us the closing statement on the destruction of Jerusalem. He lays out exactly how bad it's going to be. And uh, I think we should see it in light of verse 12, where it says, the Lord, the end of verse 12, the Lord neither rewards nor punishes. This is the, they, I will punish those who are entrenched in their sin, those who think to themselves, the Lord neither rewards nor punishes. So we're going to see whether or not that's true or not, whether the Lord acts among his creation still. Um, he, he neither rewards nor punishes. It says, Verse 13, their wealth will be stolen and their houses ruined. They will not live in the houses they have built, nor will they drink the wine from the vineyards they have planted. So basically, they're going to be, there's some frustration here based on their sin. They built these houses, they can't even live in them. They made this wine or they planted these vineyards and they can't even drink the wine from it because their sin. Um, verse 14, the Lord's day of judgment is almost here and is approaching very rapidly. There will be a bitter sound on the Lord's day of judgment. At that time, warriors will cry, will cry out in battle. The day, of, the day will be a day of God's anger, a day of distress and hardship, a day of devastation and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and dark skies, a day of trumpet blast and battle cries. 
Judgment will fall on the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on the people, and they will stumble like blind men, for they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dirt. Their, fret, their flesh will be scattered like manure. Their, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. So they can't even buy their way out of this. In the day of the Lord's judge, in the day of the Lord's angry judgment. So that neither their silver nor gold will be able to deliver them. In times past, like if Egypt came in to attack, they could just pay them some kind of a tax, and like the king would, you know, send out a tax on his people and then pay off the king of Egypt. Say, hey, leave us alone. We'll, we'll pay you off every year, kind of thing. It's it's reminiscent of like you know, mobs in Brooklyn or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, hey, we're going to provide protection to you if you just, you know, pay us something. And so, um, but but this is saying, like, you know, your, your money's no good here. It's not going to be able to deliver you in the day of the Lord's angry judgment. The whole earth will be consumed with his fiery wrath. Indeed, he will bring terrifying destruction on all who live on the earth. And then verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Bunch yourselves together like straw, you undesirable nation." Uh, so Zephaniah's command here is kind of ironic, implying that you know you you bundle the people together. They're they're like stubble or straw, as such. Um, they're vulnerable to this Lord's fiery judgment mentioned in verse 18 of chapter one. Um, they're going to be consumed quickly. So he said, "Bundle yourselves together like straw, you undesirable nation." Verse two, before God's decree becomes reality and the day of opportunity disappears like windblown chaff. So. If you're not familiar with chaff, I'm sure you are, but when they would process weed or any kind of, you know, rice or whatever it is, and you, you beat the grain with a stick or whatever it is, and then you take, sometimes you take a winnowing fork or uh, you put it in a basket and you toss it in the air and the wind blows the chaff. The bad stuff that you're trying to get off of the grain seed, it blows it away. So that's the chaff. So it says, God's decree becomes reality, and the day of opportunity disappears like the windblown chaff. It just blows away. It's disappeared. Um, that's the day of opportunity. It says, before the Lord's raging anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's angry judgment overtakes you. Verse 3, seek the Lord's favor, all you humble people of the land who have obeyed his commands. Strive to do what is right. Strive to be humble. Maybe you will be protected on the day of the Lord's angry judgment. So Zephaniah is offering a way out to those who seek the Lord. Those who humble, those humble people who have obeyed his commands. Um, he ends verse 3 with a reference to the meaning of his name. He says, maybe you'll be protected on the day of the Lord's angry judgment. Um, perhaps the Lord will provide, will provide shelter for you is, is another way to say that. Um, just maybe Yahweh will hide you from his judgment. Remember Zephaniah means... Yahweh hides, or the Lord hides. Um, so he's saying, maybe the Lord can Zephaniah you, basically. <laughs> saying, maybe you will be Zephaniah. Maybe the Lord, maybe you'll be protected on the Lord's, on the day of the Lord's angry judgment. And it's not so much, maybe God will be able to protect you. It's saying, based on the sincerity of your humility, of how you humble yourself before the Lord, based on you, your decisions and how you humble yourself, maybe God will accept that and protect you on the day of his angry judgment. And the rest of chapter 2, as Aaron read, Zephaniah is expanding the judgment on all the surrounding nations. I'm not going to read it again, but he describes all the places he's going to destroy. 
um, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Crete. Uh, last part of verse 5 says, The Lord's message is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy everyone who lives there. And he talks about Moab, Ammon. Uh, verse 13, I just wanted to read real quick. He says, The Lord will attack the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a heap of ruins. It will be as barren as the desert. And so we know from previous previous sermons, we know this, this happens. Uh, we're very familiar with the Lord destroying Assyria and Nineveh. Um, and then, so, and he's just describing all the ways he's going to um, destroy all the surrounding nations around them. So it's not just, he is very much upset with Judah. His hand is going to stretch out against Judah. He's going to destroy them for their wickedness and their polytheism and they're you know worshiping gods of astrology their atheism their practical atheism of just saying you know we're not going to seek the lord for anything we don't need his help we're we're fine on our own um and this attitude that's creeped into the people of god here in judah he's he's very angry he's definitely going to destroy them chapter one chapter two i'm going to destroy all the surrounding nations because they're wicked as well um, and then chapter 3, he narrows it down again. Instead of talking about the surrounding cities or nations, he gets back to talking about Jerusalem. Here, verse 1 of chapter 3, he's talking about Jerusalem. He says, Beware to the filthy stained city, the city filled with oppressors. She is disobedient. She has refused correction. Uh, referring to the correction of the prophets sent by God, yet she refused to listen. So God sends these prophets to Judah. Um, Judah doesn't listen. They refuse, she refuses correction or Jerusalem, I say, I should say, refuses the correction. She doesn't listen. She does not trust the Lord. She has not sought the advice of her God. Zephaniah goes to the heart of the problem by noting the cause of Jerusalem's sinfulness. She has neither concern nor time for God and his standards. And in verse 3 and 4, he calls out Jerusalem's leaders, her princes, her rulers, or her judges, her prophets, and her priests. So these political leaders and, religi and religious leaders they should all um, have a spiritual impact on its followers, but they all rebelled. Verse 3 says, Her princes are as fierce as roaring lions. I mean, they're, they're out to get all that they can. Her rulers, her judges, are hungry as wolves in the desert who completely devour their prey by morning. The little, this is literally translated, um, you know, hungry as wolves at night. It gives a picture that, like, when wolves come out to... Um, when wolves come out at night, they're extremely hungry because they haven't had food all day, so they're ravenous. Um, these rulers or judges, they're like that. They're hungry to receive this bribe under this cloak of darkness. And uh, they're completely devouring their prey by morning. Uh, literally, uh, can be translated, some versions do translate it this way, there's not even a bone to gnaw on in the morning. That means these wolves, when they go out at night, they're ravenous, they just... They attack whatever they're going to attack, and they eat every bit of it. There's not even a bone left in the morning to, to gnaw on. And that's how these, these rulers are going after their prey. Verse 4 says, Her prophets are proud, they are deceitful men. Her prophets are proud. Um, other versions translate it reckless or insolent or fickle. Um, the word literally means light, which is interesting, right? I thought it was interesting. Um, they're proud, they're light, um, as in weight, not, not brightness. Uh, perhaps understanding, I think it's best understood like in Daniel 5, 
that famous you know, inscription, men, men, tekel, you parson, where it says you have been tried and found wanting, or you've been tried and found light. Like when you weigh something in the balance, um, if somebody's a little light on what they're trying to offer you, and, but they're claiming it weighs more than it is, um, that's, that's these people. These, these proud prophets were light. They weren't, they didn't have the depth and the weight to what they really needed. Um, I pray that we will never be like that. Um, we need to be, um, myself, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else, but we need to be people that are um, people of integrity, people that have been tried and not found wanting, people that are tried and um, approved. And then the rest of verse 4 says, Her priests have defiled what is holy. They have broken God's law. The just, verse 5, the just Lord resides within her. He commits no unjust acts. Every morning he reveals his justice. At dawn he appears without fail. Yet the unjust know no shame. So even as God reveals himself to them, they know no shame. He's revealing himself to them. They're seeing that he is the Lord and they, they know no shame still. In verse 6 and following, he says, I destroyed nations. Their walled cities are in ruins. I turned their streets into ruins. No one passes through them. Their cities are desolate. No one lives there. I thought, certainly you will respect me. Now you will accept, correct, now you will accept correction. That's not a question. That is a emphatic exclamation point. Now you will accept correction. If she had done so, her home would not be destroyed by all the punishments I've threatened. But they eagerly sinned in everything they did. Therefore, you must patiently wait for me, says the Lord, for the day when I attack to, and take plunder. So he broadens it again to include all the nations. He says, I've gathered together, nation, I've gathered, I've decided to gather nations together and, and assemble kingdoms so I can pour out my fury on them, all my raging anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by my fiery anger. So this is more of a end times day of the Lord. This is more of a the, the final day of the Lord, the, the final judgment day. For the whole earth will be consumed by my fiery anger. Verse 9, Know for sure that I will enable the nations to give me acceptable praise. All of them will invoke the Lord's name when they pray and will worship Him in unison. Uh, remember, was it Philippians 2, 11, I think? You know, every knee will bow, every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is, this is that day that all of them will invoke the, name, the Lord's name when they pray and will worship him in unison. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, those who pray to me, my dispersed people, will bring me tribute. So everyone, whether they're here in Judah or Israel that's been exiled or Judah that will eventually be exiled in Babylon. This is a pre-exilic book before they're exiled out into Babylon. Um, wherever they are, his dispersed people, they're going to bring me tribute when they pray to me. So after he gathers all the nations together, he narrows it once again to talk just about God's people. Uh, but there's a separation that takes place here, verse 11 and 12. Look at it with me. It says, In that day you will not be ashamed of all your rebelliousness against me, for then I will remove from your midst those who proudly boast, and you will never again be arrogant on my holy hill, referring to the Temple Mount. I will leave in your midst a humble and meek group of people, and they will find safety in the Lord's presence. So 
this is really what the whole book has been leading up to right here. He's, he's separating out even the people of Judah, those that have sinned against the Lord to this remnant that the Lord is going to preserve. And he mentions it back in uh, chapter 2 that Aaron read, uh, but he's really getting into it here. He's, there's this clear separation. We see this remnant uh, being preserved through all of Scripture. Uh, from. I mean, we, we notice it in Noah when he preserves them during the flood. We notice it with Abraham as he sends them out the land. We notice it with Moses as he brings them out of Egypt. We notice it with Joshua as they're going into the promised land. And there's, uh, you know, all of the spies are like, it's a great people. There were like grasshoppers among them. And Joshua and Caleb are like, we got this, you know. So there's this remnant there even. And um, God preserves it. And, you know, the remnant still lives today in God's church. We are part of this remnant. Um, I think, you know, when you look at our society today, not just in America, but there's a, there's a clear divide. Not, not referring to anything political. It's not Republican versus Democrat thing or anything else. But there's a divide. And it really, it's, there's been a divide since the dawn of time. But, um, I mean, we're obviously reading about it here in Zephaniah. But uh, I think it really took off around the turn of the 20th century, from the 1800s, 1900s. Um, atheism really got its foothold. And so the divide is between those who believe and affirm the absolute truths of Scripture and those that deny it. Um, and we see it, you know, it's, it's really grown in the last 130 years, we'll say. It's really grown and grown and grown. Um, it's really taken off. And it's not just infiltrated politics. It's not just infiltrated, you know, our society, schools, friendships. Um, it's infiltrated the church even. There's, there's people within churches that don't believe and affirm the absolute truths of Scripture. And it's a, it's a, it's a sad time we're living in. I know of a church in in Nashville that has uh, an openly agnostic person on staff there because they, for some reason, think that's going to reach the culture. They do a lot of other things that are that are crazy, but that's that's still considered a church. You know, they're still considered to be a, a God-fearing church, but, um, you know, fortunately they're not. And they're, we have this, it's just... Um, we we need to we need to pray about this. We need to be aware of this, and we need to um, be bold and stand up against it. We need to be bold people that are that are fighting against this um, in our society. Be people that I think the best way to do that is to stand firmly, uncompromisingly, on the absolute truths of Scripture. Um, now. I say that, and I mean it. Um, but there's a there's a loving way we can do that. When we're, you know, if we might be right all day long in in what we're saying, but the way we go about saying it um, to others doesn't come across loving, then it's not going to be received well. Even though we could be right all day long, we still should do that in a loving way. Um, because our ultimate goal is that, you know, we want to we want to bring people into the remnant. We want to bring people into salvation, and and the Lord is offering a salvation. And so, 
Um, let's look at the rest of these verses here. Verse 13 and following. It says, The Israelites who remain will not act deceitfully. They will not lie, and a deceitful tongue will not be in their mouths. Indeed, they will graze peacefully like sheep and lie down. No one will terrify them. Shout for joy, daughter of Zion. Shout out, Israel. Be happy and boast with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has removed the judgment against you. He has turned back your enemy. Israel's king, the Lord, is in your midst. You no longer need to fear disaster. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Don't be afraid, Zion. Your hands must not be paralyzed from panic. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. Um, man, that's so encouraging. It's like we, we need not fear. We are part of the remnant. We need not fear. Uh, we need to continually shout for joy, rejoice, shout out, O Israel. Uh, be happy and boast with your heart. Um, and this is not just a um, whenever thing. You know, whenever we're singing worship songs to God, whether it be in the context of church or driving down the road in our car, those worship songs should evoke some emotion within us. Not that it's all an emotional thing. There's very much a, you know, a um, thoughtful, truthful, intellectual meaning behind it all. But, you know, when we, when we encounter things that excite us, we, we shout out over those things. When I see, um, I don't, I don't want to say anybody on Dallas's offense right now, but if I see, um, I'm blanking on his name too. If I see Diggs on Dallas's defense, catching an interception and, and run it back for a good return, I'm going to be like, all right, man, that's great. You know, good job. I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, I say I don't want to talk about Dallas's offense because, um, I don't know. I think their defense is a lot better. Regardless, you know, that that excite, that invokes emotion in me when I see something like that happen. Um, but when is the last time I got that excited when when worshiping God? When is the last time we got that excited over, you know, worshiping God? Or, or maybe sports isn't our thing, but maybe, you know, it's something we saw at a concert or, or whatever it might be. Um, we should be... We should be people, like he's saying to here, we should shout for joy, daughter Zion. Shout out, Israel. Be happy and boast with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed the judgment against you. So in that final judgment, the final eschatological judgment um, that everyone will face, if you know, and if you are not in that remnant, then you're going to face a terrible judgment where the Lord will look at all your sins and judge you based on that. Um, now, if you are part of that remnant, the good news is on that final day of judgment, when you go up to the Lord and He's going to look at all your sins, He's going to come and see and he's, He'll look upon you and He'll notice you've been covered in the blood of the Lamb. And He'll be like, all right, come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he's going to say to us when we get there. He's removed the judgment against us. He's turned back your enemy. He says, Israel's king, the Lord is in your midst. You no longer need to fear disaster. On that day that was headed to Jerusalem, don't be afraid. Your hands must not be paralyzed from panic. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver you. He takes great delight in you. 
He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. Verse 18. As for those who grieve because they cannot attend the festivals, I took them away from you. They became tribute and were a source of shame to you. Look, at that time I will deal with those who mistreated you. I will rescue the lame sheep and gather together the scattered sheep. I will take away their humiliation and make the whole earth admire and respect them. When I first read this, when I was looking at this, it reminded me of one of the endings to um, the Lord of the Rings. The What's the third one? Return of the King. So I remember when I first watched that movie, I was actually in England when it came out. Me and my friend went and watched it at like 11 in the morning because it was like a, a release where they released it all across the world at the same time. And so like a 7 o'clock airing here, I don't know what it was, maybe a midnight airing here the night before we had to see it early in the morning. Maybe it was earlier than 11. I don't remember. But we watched it, and I remember, you know, I got this large soda, and the movie is so long, and I had to go to the bathroom so bad. I'm like, oh, this is an ending. This is great. And then it was like, oh, no, here's the other part of the ending. I was like, okay, that's almost over. Oh, no, here's another part of the ending. So it's like it never ended. It just kept seemed like it was going to wrap it up in this great dramatic way, and then it didn't. So that's neither here nor there. The point is, when the movie ended, that all these people are, are gathering together, and they're bowing down to the king and all this stuff. And this is dumb. I don't know why I should get emotional over this. But they're bowing down to the king and all this other stuff, and then the king and all the other soldiers bring out the hobbits that were carrying the ring to Mordor and everything. And they go out there, and everybody everybody bows down to these hobbits. You know, they're these little bitty guys. They're real insignificant-looking people. Yet, even the king is, like, bowing down to them, right? Because they were, like, the huge part of this whole epic three-movie saga. And so, that's what I thought about this when it says, I will rescue the lame sheep and gather together the scattered sheep. I will take away their humiliation and make the whole earth admire and respect them. I don't know, that's just a picture I got. Then verse 20 says, At that time I will lead you. At that time I will gather you together. Be sure of this. I will make all the nations of the earth respect and admire you when you see me restore you, says the Lord. So, in the face of all this judgment, and as dark and gloomy as this book can be, there is a remnant. The Lord is going to provide salvation. He's going to hide those Yahweh hides he's going to hide those in this remnant and um, it's going to be a glorious day and so we need to trust in the Lord for that and trust that uh, and and I think I just trust in the Lord for that but also live for the Lord in that because that was a big part of their issue was they weren't living for God in that and because they weren't living for God in that they got distracted by these other things to worship. Even to the point where they were, you know, like we talked about, they were um, part of a lot of injustices that the Lord was having to judge against. So, anyhow, that is uh, Zephaniah. Next week we'll be in Haggai. And that'll be the last bit of the Minor Prophet study. We'll start um, Advent the Sunday after that. So, it's been fun. I've been... I've been learning a lot. I don't know about you guys, but this has been very fun to look at these smaller of the smaller prophets. Uh, maybe some other time we'll 
really finish up the, or maybe we'll just do it from time to time, this Minor Prophets Major Truth Study where we'll take a few weeks and look at the book of Daniel or look at Zechariah or Hosea, some of these others. Um, so I think Daniel's categorized as a major prophet, but it's neither here nor there. We'll look at some of these other prophets at some point and, and get into them, but it won't be a book a week kind of a thing like we've been able to do here. Well, um, let's pray, and then um, we'll have us a song. Lord, I thank you. Um, I thank you for this prophet Zephaniah to bring in the midst of all this dark gloominess, Lord, to bring such encouragement to us that you you will restore, you will provide um, a way out to some. And Lord, I pray that we will be part of that way out. Lord, I pray that we will live for you and seek you, seek to honor and worship you and seek to make your name known. I pray that we will shout out. I pray that our lives will, our very lives, the way we live our lives will shout out your greatness to others around. Uh, our lives will be so much different that people will see the way we live our lives with the joy and the satisfaction and the love that we show others. Lord, I pray that others will see that in us and know that there's something different about us. They will see that in us and they will want to be a part of that. Now give us opportunities to go about our lives to share you with others. So please encourage us, build us up, grow us to be those people. Sanctify us in that regard. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.